0: And uh, so you had the. To... You like promises? Uh, I do. But uh, I especially like them if they can be trusted. And uh, it's been estimated that uh, there are thousands of promises in the Bible. I don't know accurately. I don't know if anyone accurately knows the exact amount. But there are thousands. But we have to be careful because... Not all of the promises in the Bible are written to us. Now, I know the Holy Spirit can make them apply to us. I understand that. But uh, we have to understand who the intended recipient of the promise is. I want us to consider an amazing promise this, after, uh, this morning. And uh, it was spoken by Jesus in the last days of His earthly life. And that's what makes it even more precious. It's a promise that He made just hours before or days before His crucifixion. And He spoke at His disciples, but it's not meant just for them, it's meant for us as well. And uh, it's meant to all who would eventually become a part of His mystical body, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like you to turn in your Bible, please, to John chapter 12 if, or 14, if you will. And I want to look at verse 12. John chapter 14. Just to get a little bit of the, of the context here, this 14th chapter that begins uh, the upper room discourse as it's referred to, it begins real tenderly, doesn't it? Where He says, let not your heart be troubled. He's preparing them for His departure. He said, I'm going, but I'm going to return for you. And in the meantime, while I'm away, uh, one of my purposes is I'm going to be preparing a dwelling place for you. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you to that dwelling place. By the way, that is the first reference, though it doesn't use the word, to the rapture in the Bible. And as far as I know, it's the only reference in Jesus' words. To the rapture. Otherwise, he was talking about his second coming, his glorious coming when he would plant his feet on the earth and set up his kingdom. But anyway, <clears throat> Jesus says, I go, and where I go, you know the way. Uh, and then Thomas speaks up in verse 5 and he says, Lord, we don't know whither thou go. We don't know where you're going. And how so how can we know the way? And Jesus says unto him, famous verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. If you have known Me, you should have known My Father also. And from henceforth you know Him and have seen Him. Then Philip speaks up, provokes Philip to raise his voice, and he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Don't you love the interaction between Jesus and His disciples? The way they talk to one another. Especially this time. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, Show us the Father. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? Now listen carefully. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of Myself, but the Father that dwelleth in Me, He doeth the works. Not, He speaketh the words. He doeth the works. Believe Me that I am in the Father and the Father in Me, or else believe Me for my not My very Word's sake, but My very work's sake. And then this, verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on Me, the works that I do. And He's just talked about the works. They were His Father's works that He did. The works that I do, shall ye do also. Jesus did His Father's works. And here He says, You, all of us, shall do His Father's works too. But that's not the end. He says, and greater, greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now don't forget the next two verses because they're in the context. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pause for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful promise. And I pray that the wonder of it, the amazement of it, would be thrilling to us. Lord, open our spiritual eyes. You appeared in that upper room and you opened the understanding of your disciples, and then you opened their understanding, uh, the, the scriptures to them, and they understood the scriptures. And became your witnesses. And Lord, we need that dynamic now. We don't understand. We can't. But we have an anointing of the Holy One. And this anointing, Spirit of God, you are the anointing. And we need your teaching. So thank you for what you'll do. We pray that Jesus once again would be our focal point. Let us exalt and magnify Him, we pray in that precious and wonderful name. Amen. Let's look at the promise of God here in verse 12 again that Jesus uh, uh, relates to us. I recall in the past, many years ago, a man that uh, was visiting our church from time to time, that I knew had, uh, well, I didn't even know if he was really born again. That wasn't clear to me. But I knew that his religious background was Pentecostal charismatic. And he would come up to me once in a while, and he would ask me about this verse. And he would want to know what I thought it meant. And uh, I gave him my answer. And uh, it's not the answer that I would give to him today. It was the answer that I learned in seminary. It's the answer that I learned in in college. But it's not an answer that I had gotten from the Lord at that time. But uh, it served to keep Him at arm's distance, and that's basically what I wanted to do, and not let Him break out in any kind of uh, shenanigans. So anyway, it worked at that point, but as I look back on it, I didn't tell Him what that verse meant. In fact, I really... I have not understood this verse until uh, not too long ago, a couple of years anyway. So when I think about some of the big things that God says in the Bible, this is one of them. This is major. That's why I think that John 14 through 16, the upper room, is a study that every believer ought to delve into and really pore over those three chapters in particular. This is important stuff, this is big. And I think you'll see what I mean as we go on. But let's just quickly survey and look at some basics of this promise that we have in verse 12 where Jesus says, "...He that believeth on Me, the works that I do shall He do also, and greater works than these shall He do, because I go unto My Father." Look at some of the basics of this promise that you and I as believers will not only do the Father's works that Jesus did, but we are promised here that we will do greater works than these. What are the basics? Well, first of all, I would again say to you that this promise is universal as far as its application to believers. It's not limited just to the apostles. But look at the verse. It is addressed to anyone who believeth. And notice, it is singular. He that believeth on me. Greater works than these shall he do. Okay? So that gets it right down to you and to me as individuals. It's a universal promise. But also, it's a conditional promise, is it not? Look again at verse 12. Because he says... He that believeth on Me. It's conditioned upon your believing Him. Upon your faith. And by the way, it's present tense. He that keeps on believing on Me. Because if you are going to keep on performing greater works, it's going to be required that you keep on believing for those greater works. So it's conditioned upon your dependency. On Christ another thing about this just basic to this promise is that it is directly related to our Lord's ascension he says in that uh, last line of verse 12 greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my father So it's directly related to the ascension. And you can't have the ascension without the exaltation. You can't have the ascension without the enthronement of our Savior. And that's vital to understanding this promise, as we'll see. Now back in verse 10, he says, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of Myself, but the Father that dwelleth in Me, He doeth the works. He did the works of the Father in His earthly ministry. But He promises us, when He is seated on the throne Himself, that we will do greater works than these. Now, there's another basic here about this promise. It is fulfilled in answer to asking in prayer. You must see that in verse 13 and 14. In other words, the performing of these greater works is accessed by faith that is expressed through prayer. He said, and whatsoever ye shall ask in My name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in My name, I will do it. And the anything in My name that He said I will do is in reference to the greater works that He's promising here. Don't miss that. That's vitally important. And the reason it's that way is because when He went back to heaven through the ascension and sat on the throne and is seated at that throne, He's at the right hand of God and He's making intercession for us. It's the intercessor at the throne that enables the greater works through His body, the church. And then when that request in prayer through that prayer of faith is answered it's answered for the glory of god see that in verse 13 that the father may be glorified in the son which makes me wonder if there is not some real connection between the greater works promised in that 12th verse and the much fruit promised in John chapter 15 and verse 8. Because he says, Herein is My Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Just as the Father is glorified in the greater works, the Father is glorified in the much fruit. Both things of greatness and abundance, both speak of abundant results. And, are, and both are said to glorify the Father. Now, keep a, a marker there in John 14, if you will, and go back with me for a moment to the book of the Psalms and go to Psalm 2, if you would, please. Psalm 2. Now, John 14:12 is just an amazing promise. If you haven't recognized it, I trust you will by the time we're done. But in order to understand John fourteen twelve, I believe that we have to look at another promise that is the background of this promise. It's a promise that is the background of the promise. And it's a promise not spoken directly to God's people, but to God's Son. You're familiar with Psalm 2, Why do the heathen or the nations rage? The people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against His anointed. That's Messiah. And they say, let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. We don't want God's restraint. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision, and then He shall speak unto them in His wrath, and vex them in His sore displeasure. And yet look at what God the Father says. Yet have I set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me. Now the speaker changes in verse 7. It's not the Father that was speaking just prior to that, that I have set my King upon my holy hill. Now it's the Son speaking in verse 7 and 8. And he says, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me. Thou art my Son. This is what the Father told me. The Father told me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten Thee. And then here's the incredible promise that the Father makes to the Son. Verse 8, Ask of me, Son, ask of me your Father, and I will give thee the heathen. same word that was translated heathen in verse 1 means nations. I will give thee the heathen or the nations for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. That's the background of the promise in John 14, 12. I'm convinced anyway. And I want to show you... This astounding promise that was made by the Father to the Son that has the most far-reaching implications and really helps answer for us what Jesus meant when He says, Greater works than these shall ye do. I believe that those greater works that Jesus promises to be performed through His body, through the church, is the fulfillment of of the Son's inheritance mentioned here in verse 8. That is, the nations, the uttermost parts of the earth. In fact, in Psalm 82 and the last verse, verse 8, it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for Thou shalt inherit all nations. Mark it down. The inheritance of our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is every single people group, every kindred and tongue, all the nations upon this planet. They're His. That's His inheritance. That's what His Father promised Him. That's the promise of the Father to Jesus. The nations for His inheritance. Now, if you'll look again at verse 7, You'll find the timing of all of this. The fulfillment would require that His Son would be begotten. Now, when you think of the Son of God being begotten, don't think of Bethlehem. That's not when He was begotten. That was when He entered this earth in a physical birth but He was not begotten at Bethlehem. In fact, the Bible defines and interprets that very thing for us when Paul is preaching in the synagogue in Acts chapter 13 in Antioch. Here's what he says. We declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children. How? Look at this. How is the promise fulfilled? In that He raised, get that, in that He hath raised up Jesus again, as it is written in the second Psalm, Thou art My Son, this day have I begotten Thee. So very clearly, the Son of God was begotten in His resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus that makes Him the begotten Son. And so, while the resurrection validates the Messiah's person and His work, The resurrection also paves the way for His ascension, for His exaltation, for His enthronement. I like the way uh, the writer of Hebrews says it in chapter 1, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the Word of His power, when He by Himself had purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. And then it goes on to say, being so much better than the angels, as He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. His resurrection, His exaltation, His enthronement, His inheritance, it's all connected there. Without the resurrection, the death of Christ would be meaningless. But can I also quickly assert that without the ascension, without the enthronement of of the risen Christ, the resurrection would be meaningless. Because it is on that throne at the right hand of the majesty that the Son is in that place of honor reserved for Him, and He sits on a throne of uh, invincible and infinite authority. Heaven's throne. The promise of God. Let's see how the Son laid claim to the promise. I believe that the Messiah, Jesus, lays claim to this promise even in His earthly ministry. Well, He gives hints of it anyway. You remember there in John 10, that the the great shepherd passage. He talks about, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth His life for the sheep. He also says in that passage, other sheep have I. And he's talking about the nations. Other sheep have I. And his purpose was, he says, to bring the flock of Israel and the flock of these other nations together, Jew and Gentile, in one fold. And that's what the book of Ephesians really is all about. That's what the unity of the Spirit is really is referring to in Ephesians in that chapter. But Christ lays claim to His earthly ministry. It's hinted at even at His birth. Remember the angelic choir? The shepherds heard them. And they sang, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Could be toward the nations. And then later on, uh, when uh, His mother and father bring Him to the temple for her days of purification, She comes with Joseph into the temple court and there's that elderly Jewish man, Simeon, and he is overwhelmed because this was the answer to his prayer of many years, that he had asked the Lord not to let him die until he held the Lord's Messiah in his own arms. He took Him up and he said something like this, This is the light to the nations. It's hinted at. Even before, at his birth, and before he is up and walking and talking, it certainly is pictured in what he would do at Calvary. For God so loved, doesn't say the Jews only, for God so loved the nations, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, so forth, so on. He's dying to claim the nations. And in prayer, in anticipation of his finished work in John chapter 17. And uh, the first three verses, Jesus, this is really the Lord's prayer. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. Now, how is the Father glorified? (laughs) By his works, by his work as Thou hast given Him power over all flesh. That He should give eternal life to as many as Thou hast given Him. Power over all flesh, all nations, to give eternal life to all who believe, basically. And this is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. John 17 records much of Jesus' prayer, and I believe it's related to what the Father promised him in Psalm 2, 7, and 8. Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten, uh, have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance of the uttermost parts of the earth for Thy possession. And He's asking for the promise of Psalm 2.8 to be fulfilled, I believe, in this prayer as the Son asks the Father for His promised inheritance. You can note if you read this prayer specifically emphasis on glory and glorified and giving and gave. Jesus is sent for worldwide redemptive purposes. So are we. Look at verse 18. As Thou hast sent Me into the world, into the nations, even so have I also sent them into the world. That's our commission. Jesus laying claim to this promise in His earthly ministry. And He instructs His disciples to lay claim through their believing prayer, getting back to our text, in John chapter 14 and verses 12 through 14. I believe that's what He's doing there. The Father has promised His Son, the Messiah, Jesus, the nations for His inheritance, and Jesus is telling His followers here, ask for that to happen in terms of greater works. Do we get it? That's the greater works. That's why I'm saying this is a big promise. This is a big prayer He's telling us to pray here. This is no minuscule thing. And we should recognize it for what it is. It's God-dependent asking based on a God-given promise for the nations of this earth to be harvested. That the Lamb would win through His church the reward of His sufferings. You know, this greater works truth to me for a long time was lost. And it's really a forgotten factor in, in our church and in our circles. And in much of Christianity, I think, across the board. Have you ever had the opportunity to go into an attic and old of an old house and maybe a relative's and snoop around and just see all of the old stuff up there that has been up there for years and years and it's just covered with dust, you brush it off and you can find some real treasures in the attic. In fact, family heirlooms are discovered when loved ones die and the children or the relatives go into the attic and they find all of this Oh, this is wonderful! And they dust it off, and they they repair it if need be, and they restore it. They clean it up and restore it, and they have a treasure. Well, I believe that this truth is like a lost family heirloom that's been put in the spiritual attic of the church so uh, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ so long. We've lost a priceless truth, and it's not the only thing that that uh, not the only time something like this has happened. What do you think the Reformation was about? The church passing through the dark ages had forgotten the simple and basic truth of justification by faith that had to be rediscovered through the Reformers, and it was. And then toward the end of the 19th century and the breaking of the 20th century, another precious truth that had been lost for a period of time was discovered basically by the Plymouth brethren, and that is the dispensational truth of the second coming of Christ. The rapture of the church. And that got dusted off and has become such a blessing. I believe it's time now that we dusted off this greater works truth and realize what a precious, treasured heirloom it is. It's something that we can claim. It's powerful. It worked for them. It'll work for us. It worked in the book of Acts. It'll work in the 21st century across this globe. It's a priceless truth that we need to lay claim to because I want to tell you that now is the time of its fulfillment. Both Psalm chapter two, verses seven and eight and John 14:12 are tied to the son's enthronement as a prerequisite for the fulfillment of his inheritance, and the believers doing great works. That's all suggested as the possible connection. It's there, folks. Look at it again, verse 12. Greater works than these. Shall he do on one and only one basis? Because I go to my Father. Well, why does he go to his Father? He goes to his Father to sit on the throne. He goes to his Father to sit in the place of honor and authority. He goes to, to the Father in order to sit on the throne to make good the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So Christ's enthronement is an important link between Christ's work on earth and Christ's work in heaven. You know, the Gospel of Luke records for us all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's His earthly ministry. We learn about that in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 as He opens the book uh, of Acts to us. But as you get on in uh, in uh, that verse there, it becomes very clear that uh, Jesus' ministry didn't end with His death, resurrection, and ascension. But Luke recorded all that Jesus began to do and to teach, His earthly ministry, Acts 1.1 implies that it continued, His work continued, and it was a heavenly ministry, and I believe that's the explanation of John 14, 12. The book of Acts is the greater works, and it didn't end when Acts 28, and the last verse of that was penned. It's to continue. Luke is the earthly works of the Spirit-filled Christ. I believe that Acts is the heavenly greater works of the Spirit-anointed church or the body of Christ. Works are the normal Spirit-filled life epitomized by Jesus. And greater works are done by Jesus through the outpoured promise of the Father, the Spirit, on His body, the church that began at Pentecost. Look with me in Acts chapter 2 quickly. Would you please help you to wake up to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2 (laughs) and verse 33. Therefore, get this, being by the right hand of God exalted. That's the throne again, folks. Being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He hath shed forth or poured down this which she now see and hear. What's he talking about? He's talking about what happened on the day of Pentecost. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out My Spirit upon all flesh. He's talking about what just had been experienced. And it was the result of an exalted Christ. It was the result of an, an enthroned Christ who received at the throne the promise of the Father and He poured it down in the person of the Holy Spirit upon His church, His body that results in greater works. It results, it directly relates to the fulfillment of the Father's promise to Jesus, the Son. Tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And in that first chapter and in the fifth verse, he said, "John, truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost." And he says, "Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Where? Unto the uttermost part of the earth." Where do we ever hear that phrase before? In Psalm 2:8, it's the promise of the Father. He's given him as possession, as inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth do you see the connection directly relates to that promise given in fact as that spirit of God is poured out in Acts chapter 2 it's poured out upon all flesh and that does mean of course all classes of Jewish society but it means more than that look at verse 39 of Acts chapter 2 for this promise it's unto you, Jewish people. It's unto your children. And it's unto all that are far off. That's the nations. That's you and me. That's the na- that, that is the Gentiles. But also, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And it's to other generations. Upon you and your children. It's an amazing promise. But it's a necessary one. It really, it's the great, that's the reason for the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go to all nations. Why? Because that's the inheritance of the Son. And it requires greater works in order for those nations to be gathered in. Worldwide gospelizing. The gospel is to the nations, which is Christ's inheritance. And in the future, All nations of the earth will be gathered round the throne, and guess what they will be saying? Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And the nations of the earth culminate in Jesus' inheritance, His possession being a reality. Because that requires a harvest, we need greater works to bring that harvest in. You know, Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 2, the harvest truly is great. Well, folks, if the harvest is truly great, then it demands that there be greater works to bring in this great harvest. And these greater works are merely the outpouring of the Spirit that began at Pentecost and continue from Acts to the present. And greater works are not a quantity of works because the promise, again I remind you, is given not to a group but to an individual. He, these greater works are the Holy Spirit's outpouring in a person's life who keeps on depending on Jesus. And this is the equivalent to what Jesus calls earlier than uh the rivers of living water that flows out of the belly or out of the womb of the person who believes. When we keep on depending on Jesus, what would begin at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out like water upon the altar in that water-pouring ceremony in Judaism a, would become rivers. And a river can, can, can sustain a nation. Nations like Egypt are what they are because of the ancient Nile River that fertilizes that delta area. But rivers, plural, can sustain a world, can sustain the nations. And during Jesus' earthly ministry, He primarily reached Israel. But He sent His church, you and I, to reach Israel and the world. Don't forget Israel, by the way. I have a friend that turned me on to uh, Romans one sixteen, and uh, I, he's praying for me this week, but he said, uh, Pastor, don't forget the Jew. <laughs> I said, I won't. Because the gospel's to the Jew first, but it's also to the nations. And they're part of the nations, aren't they? Even though they're separate from them. They're part of the uttermost part of the earth. And that's the difference, I believe, between works and greater works. But you know what in, what's what been impressed upon me? Jesus says, the, tr- the harvest truly is great. The laborers are few. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest, that He would send forth laborers into the harvest. But you know what the Lord has impressed upon me of recent? Jim, while you pray for laborers for the harvest, pray that they would be greater works equipped laborers. That's what we need because mere laborers aren't going to get the work done. I mean, this is a harvest, a worldwide harvest, and we're getting closer and closer to that point when the harvest will be brought in. The final harvest. And it's going to be a harvest of the nations. And it requires laborers that are not going out in their own strength that are not relying upon fleshly energy, but laborers that have tapped into this amazing promise of John 14, 12, that are equipped with greater works, that are the power of the outpoured Spirit in the life, that they go forth, and as the church in Acts, the whole city of Jerusalem was filled with the doctrine in five weeks, and by the end of the book of Acts, the world is turned upside down by the greater works of an outpoured Holy Spirit. That day's not over. Greater works than these shall you do, Heavenly Father. Give us believing hearts. It's so easy to doubt this. And it's so easy as I have done for many years to misunderstand this. Bring clear, uh, clearness and clarity and, and faith to believe. And Lord, may we then see greater works than these in our lives, in our people's lives, in the church of the living God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.